1: com slash sacred text today to get ten percent off your first month. That's better help, H-E-L-P, dot com, slash sacred text. Chapter ten mayhem at the ministry. Mr. Weasley woke them after only a few hours sleep. He used magic to pack up the tents, and they left the campsite as quickly as possible passing Mr. Roberts at the door of his cottage. Mr. Roberts had a strange, dazed look about him, and he waved them off with a vague Merry Christmas. I'm Vanessa Zoltan.
2: And I'm Matt Potts.
1: And this is Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. Before we start today's episode, we just want to remind you that you can support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash harrypottersacredtext. There are weekly bloopers at every tier of our Patreon, and believe it or not, Matt and I bloop a lot, so.
2: Those are, those are long files. <laughs> <laughs>
1: so go to patreon.com slash Harry Potter Sacred Text to join our Patreon, and of course, if you don't do that, we're just glad that you're here listening.
2: Vanessa, I have an announcement this week. It's a very exciting announcement, which is that Not Sorry Productions is producing a new season of The Real Question, which is called Should I Quit? And in which you are going to explore quitting and what's complicated about it and why we might want to do it sometimes or why we might not want to do it. And it's going to be really great conversations with people who are taking these difficult decisions. And for that reason, we have a special topic today. We're going to be reading our chapter through the theme of quitting. So check out The new season of The Real Question, entitled, Should I Quit, wherever you get your podcasts. The story I want to tell is actually about a job that I really loved, and I decided I had to quit. And That's sort of the reason I wanted to use this story as a starting point for our discussions around quitting, because, at least for me, leaving a position or leaving something that has no redeeming quality to it, that seems easy and straightforward, right? You know why you're quitting, you know what quitting means. Quitting something that you still really value and still really care about and walking away from that seems like a more complicated way to quit. And I wanted to think through that. So I had a job once that I really valued. I felt like I was doing meaningful work. I cared about the work a lot. And it was a job that I actually imagined myself keeping for a long time, you know, into the like tens of years <laughs> kinds of units, right? And not just like imaginatively, but practically. Like Collette and I and our family actually made plans and made practical decisions with our life around housing and so forth, because we thought this was a job that I would remain in for the foreseeable future. And, you know, it was a job. It wasn't perfect. There were things I didn't like about the job and things that frustrated me about the job. But on balance, those things were always not super significant against what I really did value in the job and the work that I found really meaningful. And the reason I left the job is because I got a new supervisor and it was difficult from the beginning. And... Although I wasn't, I didn't love that difficulty. I just lumped that difficulty in with the list of frustrations in the job that did not outweigh what I really valued in the job. But over time and over the course of the first, you know, a little over a year, things got more and more difficult. And eventually my supervisor became verbally abusive towards my family. And I mean, the first instance of that, I submitted a letter of resignation within two days of that, because that was actually, you know, just went over the line, right? It was like, It was no longer a frustration that I was willing to deal with in order to do all the meaningful work that I thought was worth doing. It was now a situation where I couldn't work with this person. And I had to kind of dignify sort of my family by, you know, signaling that that kind of behavior would not be acceptable and I couldn't work with this person. And so it was the right decision. Like I didn't, I haven't doubted that decision once, but it's also incredibly painful because all the work that I was doing and the people I was serving and had really deep and strong relationships with, those things were all still there even when the supervisory relationship changed, right? And because of personnel things, we couldn't actually talk about what happened. And so it meant that my heart broke a lot and the, the heart of a lot of the people that I was serving and in relationship with in this role, that their hearts broke a lot. And it was really a really difficult process. And this example of quitting really had like a lot of grief associated with it, right? And that grief was really hard to process because I knew it was the right thing. At every step, I knew, like, of course, of course, this is what I had to do. I had to get myself and my family out of the supervisory relationship. But the right thing is not supposed to feel so bad, (laughs) right? When you're in a really difficult position and you quit it, it feels good to get out, even if there's uncertainty, even if there's unknowing about the future or new positions or whatever. In this case, there was all that stuff, as well as just the feeling of leaving behind a bunch of folks that I really cared about and valued serving. And so that's why I wanted, I wanted to start with this story, just because I, th- in every case, quitting means letting something go and leaving something behind. And so I wanted to just raise that story to talk about like the painful parts of quitting, the maybe even mournful parts of quitting.
1: Yeah, Matt, I am someone who's very much pro at least conversations about quitting. I think that there are all sorts of very strange like moral stories around sticking things out. But I love your story because it shows how high the stakes are of quitting, that even when quitting is the right thing, it means that you're grieving other things. Nothing in our lives is siloed. One bad relationship can impact all sorts of other things, including literally where you live. And so I think these questions of when to quit are really high stakes and worth looking at closely, which is why I'm excited for the podcast. But it's also why I think that your story is so great, because if you could, you would take a scalpel to it, right? And like, just quit this abusive relationship.
2: Just quit that one part. Yeah. yeah.
1: But it became embroiled with all these other things. And so you have to do something more radical.
2: In some ways, I feel like that's what I was doing for the first year. I was trying to Mm -hmm. put like a firewall around this relationship so I could do the rest of the work. And honestly, I think if I could do it again, I probably would have left earlier just in order to manage the transition more carefully and in a way that all this could be processed better instead of, you know, really suddenly and kind of abruptly. You know, I like for us to board the train to Etymology Corner. Ooh. <laughs> so the word quit actually has, shares a root with quiet, but it actually comes from the, the Latin quietus, which its original meaning actually means to be free especially free of debt or free of obligation, sometimes free of war or violence. And then it later on acquired the sense of like calm or restfulness, although there's possibilities as more ancient roots are also signify calm or rest. But I'm really interested in this idea of like freedom from something, right? Because you're exactly right. Like I did it to get free of this relationship. I quit to get free of this particular relationship, but I still felt obligations to this whole group of people who I was leaving behind when I left this role, right? And so like freedom from one thing, fine, I quit that. But I didn't quit my sense of obligation to all these other folks. And of course, when I left the role, I did officially in a formal sense become free of my obligations to them. But that didn't change the way my heart felt about them or the way that didn't change my internal sense of freedom from obligation. And so it wasn't a restful or quiet time. It actually was an incredibly like tumultuous and emotionally volatile time because that sense of obligation was still there.
1: Yeah. And I think that we will see that in the chapter too, right? This, where you're forced to quit because of someone else's bad behavior, right? Yeah. Arthur doesn't want to quit the campsite so early in the morning. Other people behaved poorly and he knows Molly's waiting for him at home. And so he's like, okay, like we're wrapping up this trip early and quitting implies agency. And yes, Arthur could stay later, but often it isn't actually your choice. Yeah. You're trying to find as much integrity as you can in a series of bad choices. And yeah, I'm really excited to talk about this theme of quitting with you, Matt. And I think your story is just a really beautiful illustration of of how quitting can have the best of intentions and even be necessary and still be really painful.
2: Yeah.
1: Well, Matt, in 30 seconds, I'll quit recapping the chapter. But first, I got to start.
2: Vanessa, are you ready? Yes. Three, two, one, go.
1: So they have to leave the campsite because Molly is going to be so worried. And they get back. They like cut in line at the port key because Mister Weasley is important. And then they get back, and Molly's like, "Oh my god, I'm so worried." And um, Harry tells Hermione and Ron. About his scar, and they react to almost exactly how he thought, and then they play Quidditch to distract themselves, and that's fun. And Molly is like, "I did everyone's laundry. I got everybody's clothes. Everybody's set." Mister Weasley is working extra hard because Rita Skeeter wrote an article where she misquoted him, and I feel like, yeah,
2: yeah, was that thirty seconds? It like, felt like yeah. shorter.
1: No, it was thirty seconds. Okay, Matt, it is your turn to try to recap this chapter. Are you ready? No. Great. Three, two, one, go.
2: So they wake up in the camp and they just pack up quickly and using magic and they decide to leave. And Mr. Roberts is obviously traumatized and it's very disturbing. And then they go to the portkey place, which is very crowded, and they are able to go home quickly. And Molly is freaking out, of course. And then they talk and they read an article. And Arthur's like, oh, my gosh, they mentioned me. Yeah, I have to go to the to the ministry. And then he spends a lot of time in the ministry over the next week. Harry tells um, uh, Ron Hermione about his scar hurting and says that he told Sirius and they didn't get anything back from Sirius. And then Molly has prepared for them to go back to, to school. And then the chapter ends. With some other detail I can't remember. You did <laughs> there was something so I wanted to well. say right at the end. What the thing that happened right at the end of the chapter that I w- that I wanted to make sure I I recalled.
1: Oh, Matt, the fancy robes. Neither of us mentioned that Ron gets dress robes he doesn't like.
2: This is the challenge of the 30-second recap. I went into the 30-second recap in my head saying, get to the fancy robes, get to the fancy robes. Failed to get to the fancy robes, and then even Upon not arriving at the Fancy Robes, forgot that I wanted to talk about the Fancy Robes.
1: Uh, well, uh, you know, again, being alive is hard. That's right. So, Matt, I think that we see quitting, like, in the opening paragraph of this chapter, which is Mr. Weasley quitting not using magic, right? It says in the second sentence, Mr. Weasley used magic to pack up the tents and they left the campsite as quickly as possible. And we know that just yesterday he was having the kids carry water, right? And he was trying to light the fire with a match and was failing at it. And he was like, it's really important to, you know, not use magic because there are muggles around. And then like this trauma has happened and he's like, I don't care about that anymore, right? I'm just going to use magic. And that's a kind of quitting, right? It's quitting a value that he holds dear, which is making sure to protect muggles and protect wizards, you know, in this agreement to there, I have a, a higher value now, which is I need to get home to my wife. Like I know she's so scared. And it's not like sure. he's ostentatious about the magic, you know, he's not being wholly irresponsible. But I think that quitting to me, like responsible quitting, is about realizing that there's a value higher than not quitting. And he has decided in this moment that getting home to Molly quickly is a higher value to him than not using magic.
2: Yeah, Vanessa, that's such a great catch and great reading. I hadn't actually thought about that. I know, you know, I just kind of read right past the line that said that that he used magic. But you're right. The text drew particular attention to the fact that he was not using magic in a few chapters ago in order not to cause complications with nearby muggles. And the, the idea of, like, muggle protection has kind of gone out the window. I mean... They obliviated the Robertses. And Mr. Roberts, as you and I both mentioned in our recap, is like worryingly traumatized. You can tell he is traumatized. And Arthur and the other wizards don't really have time for that anymore because they're worried about themselves, right? One thing I did notice in the reading, which I didn't really know what to make sense of, but now I do know what to make sense of because you have used this quitting frame to think about the the magical packing of the tent, was like the portkey depot line whatever right because the whole idea behind the portkey is to make it a secret way of traveling right a kind of discreet way of traveling but now they have this massive crowd of wizards all clamoring to get their hands on pieces of garbage so they can disappear from view i mean if a muggle's walking by like right now the wizards don't care about that they've really kind of given up that value quit their concern about that particular value because there's something else that's just outweighing it and And they can't reconcile the two, and so they have to go with the other thing. I mean, it really makes me think about this idea, the thing that you were saying in, in response to my story, where, like, you know, nothing is siloed. Our obligations don't just sit separately from one another. Often they overlap, or choosing one means we have to turn away from another. And especially because all of this behavior was framed as a way to protect muggles, in this chapter, they're leaving behind all that, set against what has just happened to the Robertses, is is really stirring, startling, yeah.
1: Yeah, it feels like sometimes, you know, there's that grid of urgent versus important Hmm. and that sometimes we'll do the thing that feels urgent rather than the thing that is protractedly important. And I think that being in community means trying really hard to hold on to what is important Versus what feels urgent to you personally. Hmm. And that can be so hard, right? When I was waiting to get my first booster shot over a year ago, the pharmacy was running so late to get me my booster shot. And they were running late because there were a couple of people at the pharmacy who were waiting for important things and were, you know, were taking a long time and, you know, ha- had a lot of needs. And I was going to be late to meeting the kids. The kids were going to be fine, right? The kids were with their mom. I just don't like to be late, (laughs) you know, especially for the kids. And there was this torn value in front of me of like, do I make a scene? Because technically it is past my appointment time. Do I quit waiting for this booster or do I go, you know, and show up on time for the kids? And it's in that moment, like trying to figure out what your value is and not be driven by I'm frustrated and therefore is so difficult. And so I I feel for Mr. Weasley. And I also wish he'd like found another way to communicate to Mrs. Weasley because it feels like he's quitting all of his values here. He's like, forget it. Let's use magic. Let's end this trip early. And also let's cut in line at the portkey line because I know Basil, the guy working the front, he's like really leaning into preferential treatment. And, and I don't know, like, I am someone who holds a value of like, look, family matters and we're going to do whatever we can in an urgent situation. But I don't know what I would do in this situation. And I am a little disappointed with Mr. Weasley that it, it feels like he's quitting so many of his values, but maybe it's just that his number one value is never letting Molly worry.
2: Yeah, I think that, I'm so glad you said that too and took it towards this kind of more critical posture towards Arthur because, again, I hadn't, because I hadn't had this reading when I went through the chapter, I hadn't been thinking about that and I just started thinking about that and then you started talking about it more and I was like, oh my gosh, yes. That's why it's important to read together, right? (laughs) To read with others, to read in community. Because I think you're right. I mean, you know, we find out later in the chapter that Rita Skeeter has... You know, in a moment of probably irresponsible journalism, suggested that there were some bodies or whatever. And and something about Arthur's statement to her is what means he has to go to the ministry and work a bunch. And we'll maybe talk about that in a bit. But the truth is, like, the wizards, as far as we can tell, are not really in danger now. This wizarding community is not in danger. There were no bodies. If anything, the rumor of these bodies came from the muggles who were harmed. Like, the only people who were harmed were muggles. As far as we can tell, a lot of people are frightened, but in terms of, like, the actual people who were being tortured, they were muggles in this instance, and the muggles are still harmed, right? And so they're abandoning all these protect muggle principles in a moment when they're afraid for themselves, but actually they don't have a huge cause to be. And the muggles are still, like— Mr. Roberts, it seems like, has been hastily obliviated, and no one's really paying attention to him anymore. They're just like, oh, he'll be fine, when probably the ministry needs to be doing more to support his family and figure out how to help them. And I know Molly's worried, but you know, we, we learn about the the Weasley's clock in this chapter. Molly knows that they're not in mortal peril, because there's a place on the clock face that says mortal peril. It's like she knows.
1: <laughs> but we don't she... know how it's trained, right? Like it could be Molly's idea of mortal peril. <laughs> like it might say mortal peril.
2: Yeah. E- either way, I think that she knows it. <laughs> yes. When someone has been in mortal peril and they have escaped it, your body still reacts as if they still are. And I can it maybe sure. that's where Molly is. And that's also something Arthur might want to, you know, respond to and care for and return to Molly. And also in the wake of traumatic or scary situations, you want to be with the people you love. And so both of them might just want that. But I I don't know. I think you're right. I think there's that urgency and importance distinction, I feel like, is really crucial in reading what goes on here. Because to me, and maybe it's because I'm a muggle, but to me, like, the most important thing right now should be the ministry trying to care for the folks who are still reeling from being tortured by by some wizards. (laughs) And then getting people home efficiently and safely is another concern. But probably less urgent, maybe less urgent, and maybe also less important than caring for the Robertses.
1: You know, the thing I'm I'm flip-flopping on this. Okay. I, I just feel like it's it well, it's Arthur's two identities fighting, right? Yeah. It's Arthur as a a working member of the Ministry of Magic and Arthur as father. And it's which identity do I quit right now? Yeah. And I can imagine justifications where Arthur's like, I was here as a dad. <laughs> right? Like I wasn't on the clock they should have hired me if so. And if so, I would have brought Molly with me to like be yep. the parent, you yep. know? And so I can imagine being like, I'm sorry, I've got to quit my ministry stuff right now. I'm dad yep. first. Yep. It, but then it becomes like a staffing thing where like they didn't yeah, right. staff up, you know, the Quidditch World Cup enough and they were counting on people to sort of blur this line. Yeah. And I feel like that was part of, you know, what happened with you and your story is you yeah. had one role as employee, and you were like, I can keep doing this, but you also yeah. have this other role as a person in your family who's yeah. like, well, I can't put up with that. And I think exactly. that's yeah. that's when quitting is hard, to your point, yeah. right? And whether or not Arthur makes the right decision, I, I, I'm like, I'm not comfortable coming down on him. But yeah. we see that he does have to entirely quit one position, in order to step into the other. When everything is fine, you can live in both, right? When you had your previous supervisor, you're like, dad, job, husband, all of it. But as soon as things become tense, you have to choose, and that's so hard.
2: Yeah, I think that's right. And I I wasn't trying to say that Arthur made a wrong decision.
1: No, 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 I I was disagreeing with my former self, not with you.
2: No, I just think think he might've been feeling some of what we're talking about. Like, whatever he does, he feels like he's, he's, quitting some obligation or identity that he holds really closely. I mean, to be a little bit more critical also, if he does feel like he's, I'm the dad right now, the, not the ministry person, and you said this already, so I'm just saying what you already said. Yeah. But if he's if he's embracing his dad identity or role and turning aside from his ministry one in this moment, then he shouldn't use his ministry connections to to cut line, right?
1: Except that as dad, you use whatever of course. you've got.
2: Yeah, of course. Yeah. But the other thing is, like, I think we can say, even if we don't say this about Arthur in particular, I think we can say generally that the ministry is making Ooh. a bad decision. Right. They are totally. managing this poorly. <laughs> yeah. And continue to manage it poorly as far as we can tell based upon what comes in the, in the rest of the chapter and the rest of the book. But we'll get to that.
1: Yeah. You get this line about, you know, and you've mentioned this, you get this line about Mr. Roberts, you know, he's confused. He's saying Merry Christmas. The kids are concerned about Mr. Roberts. So they look at Mr. Weasley, like, why is he saying Merry Christmas? And what Mr. Weasley says is that was a big thing they had him forget. And forcing someone to quit something, to quit a memory, to quit a job, to quit, that's not quitting at all (laughs) anymore. Right, like, or another way to see this as quitting is that the ministry quit a certain kind of just decency, yeah in this, right,
2: yeah, it's also I mean, this this question of urgency and importance it's such a useful way of like looking at situations which are conflicted and confusing because now I'm thinking back about like this is part of what's wrong with wizarding supremacy. That's a phrase that we use on the podcast, right? Like in a previous episode, like after this whole confrontation with Winky. Hermione is saying, like, elves' rights matter. Like, we need to care about the lives of elves and, like, how they're treated. And Mr. Weez is like, I agree with you, but that's not important right now. I agree with you, but, like, we have other fish to fry right now. And I think that's part of the problem, right? Like, the ministry—and part of the problem with forms of privilege and, or implicit supremacy or those kinds of things is who becomes important in the moment of crisis, <laughs> right? right? Like if if— Elves and muggles are less important in the moment of crisis than wizards, and we just have to protect the wizards first, and then we can worry about the elves and muggles later. That's the definition of, like, a kind of supremacy that distributes precarity or risk unevenly, right? Like, in the moment of crisis, it's to look at who is most vulnerable. And in this case, like, the muggles are super vulnerable. We saw them floating in the air, and the elves are super vulnerable. We're going to learn later what Winky has been going through, like— even when one is scared and frightened to divert one's attention to those who are most vulnerable, I mean that's 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 sort of the definition of throwing off privilege and and forms of implicit supremacy. And and we can see it just not happening in these situations. Even with characters that we admire and and like like Arthur, he again, I'm not saying that every decision he makes here is wrong or whatever, but just that they're complicated and he is in embracing certain values, he's giving up on other ones.
1: I, yeah. To be clear, if I'm Molly, this is the only thing I want. I want yeah, him to have number one priority, get your butt yep. home to me, yep. get the kids out of there. Yeah. You don't know what's happening next.
2: Yeah. And if I'm dead, like you said, if I'm dead, I, I yeah. think I'd probably do the same thing Arthur did. Totally. Which is why a text like this can be an opportunity for self-reflection for myself to think about, oh, what does right. it mean when I make those choices? Where do I make those choices in my actual life? Right? Right. Like, maybe less extreme, right? There aren't death eaters marching through our home, but there are habits that we cultivate in less intense ways that maybe reflect the same kind of choices.
1: Yeah, it brings up this question for me, Matt, of what are my responsibilities as an individual when I'm not an authority in the room, right? Because like you said, it's like very clear that the ministry is messing up here, right? Like the ministry is not stepping into its proper authority. They have quit caring about muggles and it is their job to keep caring about muggles. And I always, I'm just like always looking at situations and I'm like, is that my job here? You know, is, is it my job to triage the pharmacy? (laughs) And be like, yeah. this person is waiting for their diabetes medication. It seems essential. This person seems to have a kid in the car. Let's deal with that. And these other people don't have an appointment and are just loud. So, like, they need to sit back, right? Yeah. But, like, that's not my job. And so all I can do is, like, make a personal values judgment of, like, I drove 45 minutes away to get this booster shot. I need to pr- protect the people, whatever, right? And it's so hard on an individual basis to be like, I am scared for my children, but also winky. And I do think in these moments, we find out what we really value, you know, and at the end of the day, Arthur values his family. And like, I want us all to do better, but I also just, I want authorities to do better. But I'm 40 now. I think I'm part of the establishment. And so, like, trying to figure out in those moments, right, like, am I the authority? And I can imagine for Arthur, it's really hard because he actually has these dual identities.
2: Yeah. And you can see, like, how he keeps negotiating them in the rest of the chapter. Because another thing that Arthur quits is his holiday. He's supposed to be on vacation. And he says to the family, I got to go back to work. And we hear he goes back to work and he's there all day leaving early, coming home late. And Molly's saying, like, you don't have to be there all the time. You can spend some time with us. You can see that Molly's signaling to him that, like, you're making this choice. You're like, you really are prioritizing this identity or these commitments or these values. And I, th- my sense is maybe this is a—I'm a, a dad who works too much and projecting, but I, I see him as conflicted, too. Like, he doesn't really want to go. But the urgency has gone from the family situation because he's seen Molly. She knows they're safe. And so now the other obligations are weighing heavily on him, and so he spends too much time at the ministry and not enough time for his family before his kids go off to school again, right? So, yeah, I mean, you can see, I think you're right, you can see him really negotiating these things. And you can see how he's choosing to negotiate them by the things he quits, right? He quits not using magic. He quits his holiday, right? Like, these are, these are signs of the kind of choices and the struggle to try to meet all these complicated, overlapping, sometimes conflicting sets of obligations.
1: I think Molly's primary concern is literally just for his health, right? It's like, you can't work this hard. Like it will literally kill you. We know stress kills, right? And again, like urgency versus importance. It's really hard in moments of urgency at work to be like, well, I still need to stop for an hour and exercise and spend time with my family. And it's actually physically, literally important. And part of me is just like, it's also important Because it's important, like time with your family and rest are just, even if they weren't quote unquote good for you, they would be important. And so you have to quit. I think you also have to quit in order to find out what's important. I think, you know, one of the, this is something that Casper taught me, which is that one of the definitions of sloth is continuing to just do busy work, Hmm. continuing to work because you're too caught up to see when you're not necessary.
3: Yeah.
1: And that it's actually a commitment and sort of difficult to really be at rest. And that's something I carry with me because that is exactly the kind of work that I keep doing. I feel guilty that I haven't accomplished things. And so I just keep busy, but I'm not actually accomplishing anything. And I wonder if Arthur is up to some of that too, where it's just... Sometimes you're just like not that important and it's time to go home because it's time to go home.
2: Yeah. Like, right. I mean, I was really confused. He and Percy both have this impression that his unattributed response in the news article to Rita Skeeter's question about these bodies that were ministry recovered, that his response, which was basically a a denial, is like causing all these public relations problems for the ministry, which is why he needs to go back and work all week. I mean, I'm kind of with Bill. I think Bill says like, Rita Skeeter would have made a problem for anything. Like, it's not your fault. You don't need to be there. And I wonder, I mean, this is maybe me being too speculative, but I wonder if Arthur had made a different choice and had the rest of his holiday. And just sort of process everything he had gone through with his family and with these children if Harry might not have mentioned at some point to him that his scar hurt, right? Mm-hmm. Which might have really, like, transformed the way that, that he would be approaching his work at the ministry. And it's, it's interesting to wonder, like, it may not have gone the way I speculated, but it's interesting to wonder what would happen if he had made that choice. Yeah as I've said a couple of times now, I didn't pick up on this reading, so I'm really grateful you brought it to us, Vanessa. The first example of quitting I saw in the chapter is when Molly quits being angry at Fred and George.
1: <laughs>
2: she has been, like, simmering, like, slightly below a simmer at best with Fred and George because she's so frustrated about their performance on their exams, so frustrated about what they did to Dudley at the beginning of the book, and she has lots of reasons to be frustrated with them, and I don't think her frustration is necessarily misplaced, but this this event When Fred and George return with the rest of the family from the World Cup, you know, she she takes them in her arms and just cries out. I shouted at you before you left. It's all I've been thinking about. What if you know who had got you? And the last thing ever said to you is that you didn't get enough owls. Oh, Fred. Oh, George. Like you can see her like her like recalibrating her values and like the parental values come to the fore. And like her anxiety about about their professional careers or their futures just is dispelled almost immediately. And this kind of. Recalibration of values or reprioritization of values persists throughout the chapter, because one of my favorite moments, kind of a moment of joy in in the chapter for me, was when she starts to like approach that simmering anger towards them, and Molly notices Fred and George sort of plotting in the corner, and she's like, "You're not restarting Weasley's Wizard Weezes, by any chance?" And Fred responds, "No, Mum," and then puts a pained look on his face and says, if the Hogwarts Express crashed tomorrow and George and I died, how would you feel to know that the last thing we ever heard from you was an unfounded accusation? And then the text says everyone laughed, including Mrs. Weasley, right? Like she's come to some kind of different relationship with their misbehavior, with their hijinks or whatever. I mean, she still doesn't love it, but this reprioritization has persisted so that she can laugh in that moment. I feel like the Molly that we saw two chapters ago would not be laughing at that joke.
1: Definitely not. It is bold of Fred and George to not try to hide it.
2: It is. <laughs>
1: <laughs> they Like, she was mad about this yesterday. And now they're like, oh, she doesn't feel comfortable yelling at us right now. Let's take full advantage. Let's I don't understand it, yeah. this move of theirs. <laughs> but yes, I love that Molly got some perspective from this scary situation And so is like, okay, I'm gonna quit being so hard on them. And at least for a short period of time is sticking to that quit. Because I think that that's the kind of quit that you have a moment of clarity of like, oh my God, it doesn't matter how many OWLs they have. And then you quickly lose that clarity because if they're gonna die at the hands of you know who, then yes, it does not matter how many OWLs they had. If they're not going to die and they're going to live until they're 90 (laughs) and they need careers in order to support themselves, then it does matter, you know? So, again, it's like these different identities, like this mother of children in war is like it doesn't matter how many OWLs you have. This mother of children in peacetime, which is the identity she hopes to have and has mostly had so far in her life, is like, no, it freaking matters. Right. Um. And right. so, again, it's just like this battling of identities. Um, yeah. But I love her commitment to it and that, yeah, she laughs at this joke.
2: I, and the, I mean, the thing that for those of us who have read the whole series, the, the thing that's super poignant here is that, like, practically speaking, it doesn't matter for Fred. It might matter for George. Right. right? And that's where it.
1: It doesn't for George either because he finds yeah, like, this right. is a successful enterprise.
2: Yeah, that's right. It's, you're right. It doesn't for George either. That's right. Yeah. upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order that's quince.com/upgrade since 2013 bombus has donated over 100 million socks underwear and t-shirts to those facing homelessness
1: Redfin. It's how Molly found the burrow. Download the Redfin app to get started. Matt, another place where I saw quitting is in this scene where Harry finally tells Hermione and Ron that his scar has been hurting. You know, like, this big thing has happened, and he's like, maybe on some level I did know that there was going to be something bad at the Quidditch World Cup, and you know, so he tells them about the dream that he had with Voldemort and Peter. And he doesn't really remember Frank, but he knows that they said that they wanted to kill him. And Hermione and Ron do sort of respond exactly the way that he guessed that they would have responded. But then they find out that, you know, he's written to Sirius and he doesn't want to write to Dumbledore. So there isn't really anything for them to do. And so Ron's like, I don't know, want to go play Quidditch? And Hermione is like, no, he doesn't want to play Quidditch. He wants to keep thinking about this until we come to a conclusion. And Harry is like, no, I want to go play Quidditch. And I think that there's a tremendous amount of wisdom in this. He's like, I've done everything I can. I've thought all this through. I'm going to quit obsessing about this and go have fun. It's exactly the thing that we wish Arthur had done of like actually noticing the moment where it's important to quit the work and quit the obsessing and actually be able to do it. And I think that, again, it speaks to the importance of community because he needs Ron in order to pull him out of it. I think it's really hard to pull yourself out of it, to be like, yeah. do you know what? I'm gonna stop obsessing and I'm gonna go, you know, whatever, watch yeah. a movie, especially nowadays with technology, you can still be obsessing on your phone while you're watching the yeah. movie. So like, God bless Ron in this moment, who's like, I don't know, let's just go play Quidditch. Yeah so that Harry can quit worrying and be a kid. This thing that we always say about Harry, where he like doesn't get to be a kid. There's a moment where he like gets to quit being the chosen one. He just gets to be a kid playing Quidditch.
2: Yeah, I think it's related to what you were saying about sloth before, about how like you can preoccupy yourself or, or as a way to ease your own discomfort or unwillingness to let go of what you can't really control. Like you just do a bunch of things you can control. And it actually doesn't help your situation. I read a study about like, practicing musical instruments and like if you practice a lot and practice a lot and you keep making mistakes while you're practicing and you practice for an hour and the last time you do it you still make the same mistakes and if you go to take a nap <laughs> or or go to bed and rest the next day if you play you you will have still improved from all those because while you're sleeping and while you're resting your brain is like sorting through all that stuff and actually making you better so rest is actually this super productive thing and I don't want to put this in a super capitalist frame and say that productivity is the most important thing. But there is a way, like like you said, there is a way in which busy work, the kind of busy work that I think that we can speculate that Arthur is doing, is contrary to what is actually needed in the time. That's urgency, but not important, maybe. Mm -hmm. Whereas Harry's decision, which doesn't necessarily make sense to her mind in this moment, to just be like, you know what? I've basically told you everything I know. We've done all we could. I need to do something else. My body, my mind, my soul needs something else. Let's go play Quidditch. Yeah, it's great. It's a great decision.
1: I mean, what what Arthur needs is a colleague to say that to him, right? Molly saying that to him isn't enough because she's not at the office. And so what he needs is somebody to be like, Arthur, you were here when I got here this morning and I'm leaving and you're still here. Nothing you're doing could possibly be that important. I know the things that you're up to, right? Yeah. It's now time for our spiritual practice. Matt, today we're going to do Lectio Divina, and it is your turn to lead.
2: And I'm excited to lead, and I have just selected a sentence at random from the chapter, and here it is. It's been an absolute uproar, Percy told them importantly the Sunday evening before they were due to return to Hogwarts. So the first step of Lectio Divina, Vanessa, is that we needed Mm -hmm. to discuss what is literally going on. In the sentence and in the in the chapter where the sentence arises.
1: Well, this is Percy and Mr. Weasley have been gone all day again. And Percy is telling them how crazy things have been at the Ministry of Magic. It's just been so busy. And he's explaining that they've been getting howlers and yelled at by people who are upset. And yeah, he's telling everybody how important he is, that he's been dealing
2: with the uproar. Yeah, what's really interesting, I think, about Percy here is like, Percy's all about urgency and his importance calibration is a little bit off, right? And I know we had a conversation, a small conversation about the importance of the thickness of cauldrons. Whether that <laughs> not that's actually true, we know that his brothers have teased him about thinking that the thickness of cauldrons, which is his main project right now, the ministry, that that is very important. But it seems like Percy... Wants to behave urgently so that others believe he's important. <laughs> yeah, and this is what this this is what this sentence conveys. I think.
1: Yeah, I love that moment in the chapter where he's like, "Ah, oh, there's been an emergency involving Death Eaters. I'm going to make sure that Mister Crouch has my uh, cauldron report." Right. And right. it's like, no matter how important that is, it's not the time. It's
2: not urgent. Right. It's
1: not. It's not urgent or important. Or
2: important. It right. is
1: yeah. neither. <laughs> And yet his commitment to it. Um, and I i just believe him that it has been an uproar, right? It's just mm-hmm. just because something is an uproar doesn't mean that you can actually do anything about it. The moment to have done things about it w- would have been at the campsite. And now it sounds like, yeah, there are a lot of damaged items to process, but that can be its own slow process.
2: Yeah. The second step of Lectio Divina is to discuss what, other stories or texts this sentence reminds us of. So I'm going to read the sentence again. It's been an absolute uproar, Percy told them, importantly, the Sunday evening before they were due to return to Hogwarts.
1: It's a moment of pause, right? It's in between uproar and between the kids going back hmm. to school. And so I'm thinking about just like the quiet nights before a battle of one kind or another. Hmm. It reminds me of, you know, like the St. Crispin's Day speech in Henry V. This is a moment where, like, Percy and Mr. Weasley could be giving that kind of meaningful speech of, like, you're off to school. Education is actually the most important way to deal with trauma. Like, they could be making meaning of everything that's gone on. And, like, the big news in this house tonight is that the kids are off to school tomorrow and that is like a meaningful thing in their education, whereas like nothing is going on at the Ministry of Magic. They're getting a lot of angry mail and they're getting a lot of submissions for like broken tents. You know, it's not like people's modes of transportation have been destroyed. It's tents, camping tents that have been destroyed. That is not that important. And it reminds me of the, you know, the Henry V St. Christmas Day speech because That is a moment where a leader takes a moment to like make meaning. And it's also a speech of propaganda, but it's a pause between battles where a leader is like, you matter and what you're doing matters and people are going to remember you. And I wish that this dinner was like celebrating that the kids are going off to school. And instead they're talking about like Mundungus trying to get some money. Yeah. What does it remind you of?
2: You know, what came to mind are just like an assortment of like depictions of newsrooms in film, Mm. right? Mm -hmm. Like, like, you know, like spotlight, but also, you know, that season of The Wire when they focus on newsrooms or inventing Anna or like anytime you're in a press room, it always feels like what's and I'm sure this I've never worked in a at a newspaper, but I'm sure this is true because there are deadlines like everyone's always moving at like 100 miles an hour fast pace. But in those scenes, there's always time for colleagues to make, like, witty comments to each other. Like, they always have time (laughs) to, like, joke and have this kind of moment of, like, we're also friends and chatting here, you know, kind of thing. And there's something about, like, this idea of a background of chaos and frenetic energy. And you have this, like, little conversation between people who are grabbing a coffee or have a moment to talk Where they're still friends and they still have like a a normal paced conversation. So something about something about this scene is reminding me of, of the way that kind of those moments of pause, like you said, those moments of pause are set against backgrounds of chaos and freneticism.
1: I love those movies and shows.
2: I know. Aren't those fun? I know. The third step of Lectio Divina is for us to reflect upon what this line might remind us of in our own lives. So let me read it a third time. It's been an absolute uproar. Percy told them importantly the Sunday evening before they were due to return to Hogwarts. Yeah, I think what I'm thinking about, I, I feel like maybe the reason why I had this this association with all these newsroom films is because maybe that's how my life feels a little bit right now. Like I feel like there is this, the the I'm it's a very busy time of the semester for me, and there's a lot of chaos is too strong a word, but I'm being pulled in a lot of different directions. <laughs> But also for kind of family reasons, I've been really deliberate about taking some time off. And there is something about that disjunct between actually really committing to taking time off and being in a place where you're quiet and you don't pay attention to all that stuff for a day or two. Something about that movement between those two spaces, between sort of the 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 being pulled in many directions at once, feeling, you know, six days a week, and then one day you just really leave it all behind and you're actually just to kind of sit like... So in my life, I feel like that's a there's a similar dynamic going on between moving hundred miles an hour and then just coming to a full stop for twelve hours or eighteen hours or a day
1: how does it How does it feel?
2: Um, it feels good on those days, and I think I think the reason I, I'm reluctant to to take that time is I worry that when I come back, yeah it'll feel worse. But, but actually, it just feels the same as it did before, <laughs> right? It's, right. It's still, it's still kind of chaotic and being pulled in different directions, but that would be true whether I took the 12 or 18 or 24 hours anyway, right? Yeah. And so I think when, once I realized that, it got easier to take the time because I returned to it and it feels like it would feel anyway, so I may as well take the time.
1: Yeah. Yeah. How about you, Vanessa? This is going to be a braggy story, Matt. Love it. But I remember in the 10th grade— We were sitting for a history test, and it was, you know, the couple minutes before class started, and so we didn't have the test yet. And the kids in front of me were all competing about how late they stayed up studying. They're like, I only got two hours of sleep. I only got one hour of sleep. I didn't sleep in 17 years because I was studying. And someone turned to me, and I was like, I went to bed at 1030. Like, I just... It was like, this is not an uproar. We don't need to make ourselves sound important. It's a history test. Yeah. Like this like competitive busyness like deeply offended me. And did I do as well on the test as all of them? Probably not.
2: Yes. Oh, I thought you were gonna brag. <laughs> I,
1: I don't think so. I don't know. I, I, I'm sure I did fine. I'm sure I did fine. <laughs> but I'm sure they did marginally better. I just like that feeling of like, We are in the 10th grade. We are not important. Like, this is just a frickin' history test. I just want to say good job, past Vanessa. But that's what it reminds me of, are the moments where I'm like, this actually isn't important.
2: Okay, the fourth step of Lectio Divina, Vanessa, is for us to reflect upon what we are called to do or be by this sentence. So I'm going to read it one more time. It's been an absolute uproar. Percy told them importantly this Sunday evening before they were due to return to Hogwarts.
1: Well, Matt, what it reminds me of is the fact that I have disappointed 15-year-old Vanessa. I walk around being like, oh, my God, I'm so busy. My One of my best friends, Julia, we text almost this every day. And she, the way that she will ask me how work is, is, is work so busy right now. And like, I obviously project that and I don't want to, like, go to bed it's, there's no such thing as a podcasting emergency. It's just a history test. Yeah. Everyone's fine. Yeah. I work with the nicest people ever. When I disappoint them, they're really nice about it. Yeah. What about you, Matt? What does it make you feel called to?
2: I just, I want to pay attention to the way that, you know, I, hopefully I'm not as obnoxious as Percy, like projecting self-importance through my busyness. But I also want to pay attention to the ways that like it might communicate that more subtly, right? Like one of the reasons I'm spending more time with family is my mom's pretty sick. And so we were trying to spend more family time with my mom and dad. And I was talking to my staff about this, about, you know, how I'd like to do this. And I just don't, can't get the time away. And they're all like, why? Of course you can. <laughs> and I was like, no, I, I have to be here for this. And they're like, why? Just go, right? And like, and I just want to yeah. reflect upon like, yeah, I, I really trust them. And they're, I have a really great staff and they're really good. And I'm actually not worried at all about how things will run if I'm away for a day or two, but like not worried in the least. And yeah. it occurred to me, and I don't think this is what they're saying, but it occurred to me, like, what am I communicating to them when I insist that I have to be around when everybody knows I have a good reason to be someplace else, right? Like, I also want to communicate to them that, like, yeah, you got this. I completely trust you. and I. Just pay attention You might actually to the way do that,
1: a better job without me being yeah, there. Yeah, a
2: lot of people, like, <laughs> your enthusiasm for me to be absent maybe should tell me something about, <laughs> about my presence. Um, no, but, like, I don't think that they were taking it this way. But just also pay attention to the no. fact, like, I, it can signal trust to them, right? To people right. who I actually trust if I entrust them <laughs> with, with what they are capable of doing, right? And are great at doing. And so, yeah, just to, to you know, just to... These decisions about taking time for oneself, they're also not all about yourself. It's also about interesting folks to carry carry the things that you carry with them while you need to take some time. So yeah.
1: Well, thanks, Matt. That was a great lectio. I'm really grateful. Thank you. This week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by Redfin. Let's say for some reason, you can't get back to Grimald Place. Redfin. It's how Molly found the burrow. Download the Redfin app to get started.
0: Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less in similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. This week's voicemail is from Sarah.
3: Hi, Harry Potter and the Sacred Text team. Uh, my name is Sarah, and I'm calling to give a blessing for Harry. In Book 3, Chapter 12, The Patronus... Uh, Y'all talked about Harry's experiences learning the Patronus charm with Lupin through the lens of trauma, uh, which I completely agree with. But for me, that scene really reads like a phobia and like exposure therapy. In exposure therapy, you face your phobia again and again, intentionally putting yourself in a position where you know you will have a panic attack and you try to get through it. Just like in exposure therapy, Harry has to face his worst fear over and over again to the point of passing out. And I know bravery is Harry's whole shtick, but I really found his bravery in this scene to be remarkable. Uh, I've been battling a severe phobia my whole life, and while exposure therapy is really effective for phobias for most people, uh, for some reason it just didn't work for me. Uh, My panic attacks did not get any lighter, and I eventually had to stop to protect my overall mental health. Phobias aren't often taken as seriously as other mental illnesses, uh, even among mental health professionals, uh, but they can be just as debilitating. Uh, It is really a lot more than just an irrational fear. So I want to give a blessing for Harry, for his bravery, and for anyone else struggling with a phobia. May we all get the treatment we need, and may we all find the courage to get back up and face the dementor again. Thank you.
1: Sarah, thank you so much for this great reframe. I mean, it just speaks to the fact that things can be so many things. Something can be a trauma and a phobia, and our phobias can become traumas. And I'm really grateful to you pointing us to how complicated all of these things are in Harry's case and in the lives of ourselves and the people we love.
2: Thank you, Sarah, for your voice memo. Yeah, I also want to bless Harry for his bravery. I think... Can I also bless you for your bravery? I can't imagine how difficult it must have been to engage your phobia so directly over and over again to the point of deciding that this form of treatment was not effective for you. That sounds really hard. I just want to bless you for your bravery in going through that and in your continued perseverance with your phobia.
1: It's now time for us to honor members of our community who have been loved and lost. Al Roderick, who is 91, a husband, a father of three, and a florist who was still having adventures until the end. Tom Swank, 51, a father, brother, and outdoorsman. Matthias Privo, who was 22, a big brother and loved by everyone. Richard Grooms, a friend, student, seeker, and mensch. Sharon Teal, who is 79, an environmental steward with the kindest heart. Mark Stephen Ward, also known as Magic Mark, who is 68, a magician, wizard, and friend of many. May their memories be a blessing. Matt, it's now time for us to offer blessings for characters in this chapter. Who would you like to bless?
2: I'd like to bless Ron. We didn't get to really talk about this during the chapter, but at the end of the chapter, you know, he gets a secondhand set of dress robes that he is not excited to wear. And I'm sure we'll talk about this later on when he does actually don the secondhand dress robes. I just want to bless him for like, one of my memories, like one of my most distinct memories from elementary school is when I had to wear an outfit that was my older brother's, that was a hand-me-down that I did not like. And I remember I walked to school thinking, oh my gosh, I hate that I'm wearing this. I hate that I have to wear this. I hate that this is the only thing I have to wear. And within, like, two steps of me walking on the school grounds, Jenny Russo and Tracy Lapchak made fun of me (laughs) for my (gasps) outfit. I know. And I was just like, it's just right, like, that's a rough place to be. (laughs) So, and I know a lot of our listeners have been there or may be there now. And I just want to bless Ron because, you know... For a lot of us, hand-me-downs and secondhand stuff is part of what it means to get dressed every day. (laughs) So, a blessing for Ron. Who are you blessing, Vanessa?
0: I would
1: like to bless Charlie Weasley. There is a sentence that I never noticed before, and I can't believe it. And that is that Charlie was darning a fireproof balaclava. And that makes sense because he needs Mm -hmm. fireproof clothes as his dragon, you know, capturing. I don't know what he does. He works with dragons. And I love that he's fixing his own balaclava. We know that Molly is like out here doing laundry and stirring and running up and down stairs and going to Diagon Alley and getting Hermione her books, even though Hermione has loving parents who would probably do that. And, you know, Charlie is like, I can darn my own fireproof balaclava. And I love a man who darns. I just love it. Blessings to you. Next week, we're going to be reading book four, chapter 11, aboard the Hogwarts Express with special guest Jolie Doggett through the theme of peace. Just a few reminders before we give our thanks, which is that you can join us as always on Patreon at patreon.com slash Harry Potter Sacred Text. And we have a Daphne de Maurier, Rebecca Pilgrimage with the great, amazing, lovely, brilliant Dana Schwartz. I will be going on that with Dana. You can find out more about that at readingandwalkingwith.com. And of course, you can get ad-free episodes across the Not Sorry catalog through Apple Podcasts. You can click on that at the top of your feed and you even get one month free to try it out. See if it's worth it. This was a Not Sorry production. We are a feminist production company. Our executive producer is Ariana Nettleman. We are edited and produced by AJ Uramas. And our audio engineer is Erica Wong. Our music is by Ivan Paisau and Nick Bull, and we are distributed by Acast.
2: Thanks this week to Sarah for their voicemail, to Laura Glass, Julia Argy, Margaret H. Willison, Nikki Zoltan, Casper Terkyle, Stephanie Paulsell, Hannah Rehack, and everyone who sent in the names of those they have loved and lost this week. So check out the new the new season of The Real Question. Should I quit? Wherever you get your podcasts. <laughs> like I don't know. Like I like I'm not utterly confused. So check out the new season of The Real Question entitled Should I Quit, wherever you get your podcasts.